I'm Tiffany Patton, and this is Real Food Reads, the book club and podcast from Real Food Media. Each month, we feature one of our favorite books on the intersection of food, politics, and culture, and invite the authors to share their insights with us. This episode of Real Food Reads is a series of excerpts from my conversation with Bryant Terry, author of Vegetable Kingdom, The Abundant World of Vegan Recipes. Our conversation took place at the Center for Urban Education about Sustainable Agriculture's Market Talk, recorded in front of an audience at San Francisco's Ferry Plaza Farmer's Market. We're on a busy street in the middle of a farmer's market with a live audience, so you're going to hear all of that in the excerpts. I, I like to think that the recipes are more than just about sustenance, but they're about teaching people history. They're about sharing memories and really giving like the reader kind of a full sensual experience, but also kind of like educating them at the same time. Every once in a while, a cookbook comes out that shows the simple yet revelatory beauty of food while also promoting a different way of thinking, being, and relating to food. Bryant Terry's Vegetable Kingdom, The Abundant World of Vegan Recipes is that book. All five of his books are really. Vegetable Kingdom has been making headlines and splashes since its release and was announced as the number three best-selling book on Amazon the day of our conversation. So you might wonder why a vegan cookbook has caused such a stir. Well, that's because Bryant Terry's Vegetable Kingdom is more than just a collection of vegan recipes. It is a love letter to his daughters, a reflection of their mixed heritage, it's a celebration of the vegetable kingdom, and it is a subtle but unabashed decolonizing of vegan eating, soul food, and agrarianism. Here's what makes Brian's approach so special. What I found is that there's this kind of like bifocal approach that I have to take around educating people about the, the true origins of soul food. And so it's not just that the wider culture needs to be re-educated about the diversity and complexity of the type of food that African-Americans have you know, grown, cultivated, and consumed you know, from the time that folks have landed here, but it's people of African descent as well. Yeah. You know, Black folks have their own misperceptions and misunderstanding of what our food is. And when someone will tell me that you know, this type of book is somehow written through, and, and I'm just being like completely transparent about like a, a kind of critique I saw somewhere. I don't, I don't think it was on um, a comment. No, it wasn't this one, it was actually my last book. Someone said something about like, oh, you know, that book is written through the white lens. He's like, there, somehow he's writing it with the, the white gaze in mind because, you know, this isn't soul food. I want more like barbecue tofu and like, you know, just like the kind of stereotypical foods that I think people often associate with African-Americans. And so it, it, it hurts me that people don't know our own history and the kind of agrarian based, you know, traditions that we have and the, the vegetable centric food that we see throughout regions of the American South. And like I said, throughout the African diaspora. And so, you know, I'm always thinking about how I can, kind of ease people into this understanding. And once again, for me, recipes are such a powerful way to do that. You know, some heady intellectual lecture may resonate with some people, but some people don't want to hear that. But I I found that if I present, you know, a dish and then people are just like, this is amazing, what is it? And then I could talk to them about the history of it. You know, for example, one of my favorite dishes in this book is called Big Beans, Buns, and Broccoli Rob. And so, I'm not a baker, but I actually make a homemade bun for this. And the bun is filled with um, some of Steve Sandoz. You guys know Rancho Gordo beans? Rancho Gordo is like awesome. 
Um, so they're royal Corona beans that have been um, cooked until tender. And then they are simmered in this rich tomato-based gravy with diced potatoes. And then it's the, the bun is topped with that. And then we take broccoli rabe and we either um, grill it or uh, roast it in a sandwich. And the, the origin of this recipe is bunny chow. And bunny chow is a traditional South African dish that um, laborers would often have. And, and, and what they would do is take a loaf of bread and then hollow the loaf of bread out and fill it with a curry. And originally it was a vegetable-based curry. You know, I think lima beans was the foundation, but kind of as it evolved, more meat-based curries were used. And so when I think about a dish like that, I think about the kind of like portable foods that we see throughout different cultures that people use, working people would use, you know, whether it's like empanada or, um, you know, hand pies in the American South and tamales, like these quick portable nutrient dense food that if you're a worker, if you could take it, you could stuff it in your pocket and keep it moving. And so, you know, I, I like to think that the recipes are more than just about sustenance, but they're about teaching people history. They're about sharing memories and really giving like, you know, the, the reader kind of a full sensual experience, but also kind of like educating them at the same time. Yeah, it's I think it's important to note that I always frame the work that I'm doing as helping people remember many of the practices that our ancestors had, you know, just by show of hands. How many people in, in the audience have had people in your family who were smallholder farmers? How many people had home gardens? Did you have family members that actually made food from scratch? Then did things like canned, pickled, and preserved, things like that? So a lot of these practices that I think are presented as like the things that we should be doing to help, you know, connect with real food, to help us kind of make our way back on the path to more healthy and sustainable food system. These are things that I grew up with. You know, I grew up in the South. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, and my family came from the rural South, Mississippi, Tennessee, Arkansas. We own farms. And so when my grandparents, my paternal grandparents, when they came to Memphis, as many people migrated from the rural South to the urban South, they obviously brought with them the connection to the land, the survival um, instincts, the traditional agrarian knowledge. So these were things that they implemented in the context of the city. My paternal grandfather, you know, more than a garden, I say he had an urban farm where every bit of available space in his backyard was being used to produce food. And I'm not going to romanticize it. Trust me. Like, they were definitely kind of doing some child labor exploitation when they were getting all the grandkids to go out there and, like, plant food and pick weeds and harvest and shuck corn and shell peas and all that. But, you know, those are some of my fondest memories. And I feel like the lessons that I learned there, like, you know, obviously the seed to table cycle, you know, just the benefits of kind of like planting a seed and the benefit of, you know, seeing your the fruits of your labor. But everything I'm doing is kind of like helping people get back to these practices that I think a lot of our ancestors had at some point. And so um, that's the beginning. And I think that's important. You know, one of the things that my work has been pushing back against are these kind of like reductive ways in which people frame African-American cuisine. What they often are imagining are two things. One, people talk about the kind of antebellum survival food that many enslaved Africans had to, you know, subsist on, right? The argument that I've heard, even among many African-Americans, is like, you know, soul food, because when people say soul food, I think they're imagining black food. That's the kind of like 
for them it's synonymous. You know, when soul food, that's the black people food or whatever. The black people. Uh, <laughs> I like it. And so people will say, you know, well, that's slave food. I always There are a number of misconceptions around soul food. One, which Bryant just mentioned, is that soul food is slave food. This misconception comes from thinking of the most paternalistic type of slavery, which was prevalent in the antebellum South, where those who were enslaved didn't have any autonomy or resources to feed themselves at all, but instead relied solely on their plantation owners for sustenance. However, other forms of slavery existed, where there was a little bit of autonomy and a little bit of space to grow your own garden and cook for yourself occasionally. Another misconception about soul food is that it is meat heavy, fried, fatty, and ultimately not good for you. But deep fried and fatty foods are not our only legacy. Bryant's research, alongside the research of Michael Twitty and other culinary historians, shows that the cuisines of Sub-Saharan Africa, the Caribbean, and the American South were vegetable based. Before the industrialization of our food system, meat was very expensive and not available to many black and or working class people. Meat was purely supplemental. And frying. Frying was a technique for preserving foods, a technique learned from Native Americans. And the heavy, high-fat foods we often conflate with soul food were a part of the culture, yes. And they were more often saved for special occasions, not everyday eating. Brian's activism and his cookbooks bust myths around soul food and honor the other contributions that enslaved African Americans made to our cuisines and our agricultural system. There wasn't some random kind of like plucking of Africans that were then enslaved and brought to the Americas. There was specific knowledge that many of these Africans had and they were brought here to employ that knowledge. And so I think, you know, we need to talk about that, but if we're gonna have an honest conversation about our food system in general, we have to start from this place. And, and Leah Penniman, um, the farmer and activist and author of Farming While Black, brilliantly discusses this in her new book. We need to start by recognizing that our broken food system is built on stolen native land. This is a land that was stolen from native people. And so this whole runaway food system that we talk about kind of correcting in whatever way we imagine that is stolen. The enslaved Africans were brought here. And we think about the role that they played even in bolstering modern capitalism, we need to recognize that. And so conversations that, you know, I think some of the most brilliant organizations that are talking about food are not just talking about food, but they have an intersectional analysis and they're talking about the many forms of oppression and the many ways in which structurally our food system is broken. People don't have access to food. And I think about Movement Generation, who's right here in um, the San Francisco Bay Area. I think about the movement for black lives. Like these are organizations that are talking about racial justice. They're talking about things like how do we reimagine our relationship to energy and land and think about things like addressing climate change. We're talking seriously about reparations because once again, we can't have serious conversations about what's broken in so many areas of our um, country if we don't talk about the reality that the institution of slavery, the, the, the hundreds of years of free labor that enslaved Africans provided for this country is what gave capitalism its kind of like boost. Throughout Brian's work, we really see that food is about pleasure, the pleasure of connecting to your history and to each other. Another key component of Brian's work is music, something that many of us get a lot of pleasure from. Brian's cookbooks come with a playlist, not only to celebrate culture, but because music is what started him on this journey of food activism and veganism. 
Well, so what kind of moved me into this journey of embracing more of a healthful and compassionate diet as a high school student was actually a song. And that's part of the connection to the music is because, you know, I, I realize that sometimes like these kind of heady intellectual conversations, they work for, for some people. But one of the issues I had when I first started doing work in the food movement is I found that there were a lot of like class and educational assumptions that were being made in these spaces about how are we going to change the food system, you know? And I, I think that when I kind of ruminate on my own history, when I think about the fact that it was a song that moved me to just kind of turn everything upside down and I'm like, I'm going to change my life. I, I need to recite this song to you because um, I need to kick the lyrics to this song that moved, that moved me to think about being a vegan. And it's called Beef. And it's by this hip hop crew, one of the, the illest hip hop crews in history called Boogie Down Productions from the Bronx. Um, got a hip hop head in the audience. Okay. And it goes like this. Beef. What a relief. When will this poisonous product cease? This is another public service announcement. You can believe it and you can doubt it. Let us begin now with the cow, the way that it gets to your plate and how. The cow doesn't grow fast enough for man, so through his greed, he creates a faster plan. He has drugs that make the cow grow quicker. Through the stress, the cow gets sicker. 21 different drugs are pumped into the cow in one big lump. And just before it dies, it cries in a slaughterhouse full of germs and flies. It gets much more graphic, so I'll stop there. But I just feel like this one song so brilliantly articulated the ills of factory farming and the impact that it has not only on human health, but on the animals and the environment. Beef by Boogie Down Productions paints a pretty graphic picture of confined animal feeding operations, otherwise known as CAFOs or factory farms. In the United States, more than 99% of the animals raised for meat, dairy, and eggs are raised on factory farms. These operations are mostly owned by large agribusinesses that extract wealth from every step of the process, leaving farmers and the rural communities nearby high and dry. Around the U.S., people who live in these communities are speaking up about how living near factory farms are impacting their quality of life and their environment pushing for regulations on emissions and even moratoriums on building new factory farms. Livestock agriculture does not have to look like a factory farm. There are ranchers and other farms who do business differently, integrating livestock ethically and holistically into the local environment to build soil resilience, reduce fire hazards, and increase biodiversity without the negative impacts on environment and public health that we see with factory farms. Bryant's books are not reprimanding meat eaters. They are, in fact, an enticing celebration of the diversity of vegetables and vegan recipes out in the world. His earlier books, like Afro-Vegan and Vegan Soul Kitchen, showcase the range of vegetables and vegan recipes in the African diaspora. Vegetable Kingdom celebrates the diversity of vegan recipes in the African and Asian diaspora. It isn't just tofu and kale. And I have to say, as a Korean and Black person, I was just delighted to see this specific collection of recipes. It is so rare for a person of mixed heritage to see themselves fully represented. So uh, my wife is Chinese American and we have two Afro-Asian children. And so, you know, I think we both understand the ways that we could teach our children about themselves through food. And so I'm obviously doing it through African diaspora food and my wife does it through different Asian cuisines. You know, the Chinese food that she grew up cooking, but she's also really adept at Thai, Lao, uh, Vietnamese, Japanese. So we just kind of have like a varied 
Asian and African diasporic um, palette that we pull from. And I, I think in general, so often, especially with black food, it's just at the margins. And when people think about food cultures, they're, they're thinking about European cuisine or even in the health food world or like when we think about eating more vegetarian and vegan, a lot of it falls towards like Asian food because of the development of the movement. But I'll tell you the one that I feel like is often missing from what I think should be kind of a core component of how we imagine what healthy food is. And I think it's food that's culturally relevant, right? I think we need to consider what are the foods that our ancestors ate? You know, so often, especially, you know, we were talking about a little earlier about how for decades, when we talk about eating like plant-based food, vegetarian, vegan, that macrobiotics, it's leaned towards Asian cuisine because of the macrobiotic movement was so ascended in the 70s and the 80s. And I think that there are a lot of things about Asian, certain Asian cuisines that are helpful. I mean, first of all, you know, Asian, Asia is a big continent. There are varied cuisines throughout the continent. But I think that, you know, when I think about like my ancestral foods, the foods that I grew up eating, the foods that my grandparents grew in their backyard garden, I'll put it like these. We talk a lot about superfoods. You know, we talk about quinoa being like the superfoods of the Andes or whatever superfood. I like to talk about black superfoods. So if we talk about dark leafy greens such as collards, turnips, kale, mustards, dandelions. Like these are nutrient dense leafy greens that we should all be eating. Sugar snap peas, uh, pole beans, black eyed peas. Like these foundational foods are African American cuisine. So I think that like obviously the type of foods I feed my children are the type of foods I grew, grew up eating. But then when I think about my kind of imagined connection to this larger African diaspora, you know, I don't think we necessarily have any roots in East Africa, but I, I draw from those foods because I want my children to like learn about history. I want them to find like pride in the food that they're eating and learning about the contributions of, the, of their ancestors in like food and agriculture and otherwise. And so I think food's such a powerful way to like teach and share. But I think that if we're all thinking about what we should be doing to eat more healthfully, we should be looking at what are the foods that sustain our ancestors, you know, in the, in the, the, the roughest of times. Vegetable Kingdom was inspired by Brian's two daughters, and he has a long history of being inspired by and working for young people. In New York City, he founded Be Healthy, building healthy eating and lifestyles to help youth a multi-year initiative designed to empower youth to be more active and working towards a more sustainable food system. Why the focus on young people? Because he knows that youth have power. We could just look at the 20th century. Some of the most successful social movements, young people, their energy, their vigor, their brilliance, that has helped these movements like really push forward. You know, we could think about like the anti-apartheid um, movement in South Africa. We could think about the civil rights movement here in the United States, young people. If we think about like what the Black Panthers who have been so instrumental in inspiring the work that I do, like, you know, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, I think most of us know who they are. We're in the Bay Area. The Black Panther, so I call them the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense because that was their original name, right? They were responding to police violence. They were responding to the same issues that we have today where you have mostly Black men who are being detained, who are being um, often abused and sometimes killed. And so they would watch them from a safe distance as they were detaining and arresting black folks to make sure that they weren't uh, violating their rights. So what happens is that the mainstream media 
they circulate the images of the earliest moment of the Black Panther Party for self-defense, right? Just like any organization or individual, we grow, we change, we evolve. That was 1966 when they were founded by Hugh P. Newton and uh, Bobby Seale. What I want to shift people's gaze towards is some of the most important work that the Black Panthers were doing, which were their survival programs. They had 65 programs that were aimed at meeting the basic needs of people living in communities. They did everything from you know, having free ambulance services that would transport people to hospitals. They had free clinics where people could get medical care. They had sickle cell anemia testing because this is a disease that largely impacts people of African descent. This was pre-Uber and Lyft, pre-rideshare. They would have cars that would transport elderly people to their doctor's appointments, to the um, grocery store to get their um, food, to visit family members. But the programs that they had that sat at the intersection of poverty, malnutrition, and institutional racism were the ones that inspired me the most, right? They did grocery giveaways where they were giving away bags of groceries to low-income residents of the Bay Area. Look, same issues back in the 60s, like hunger. But then they had their free breakfast for children program, which was aimed at feeding children a hot, nourishing breakfast every single day, right? So in 1968, they started this program, and by the end of the year, I think it was started in January of 1968, by the end of the year, this program spread to every, from Oakland, California, right across the bridge. This humble program spread to every single city that had a Black Panther chapter, and they were feeding over 10,000 young people every single morning, right? And they knew, it was, they didn't need any peer-reviewed medical studies to know the connection between nutrition and academic outcomes and nutrition and behavioral outcomes. And as Erica Huggins reminds us, one, it was mostly women who were running these programs because the images we see are the, like angry gun-toting uh, militant men, but there are women who are doing the labor of running these programs, often you know, volunteering their time. Is Erica Huggins who ran the um, Oakland Community School, which was the flagship program of the um, survival program said she was on welfare because she was just doing this out of like pure love and desire to care for our children. And so that's what my work is about. This has been a special episode of Real Food Reads with Brian Terry, author of Vegetable Kingdom, The Abundant World of Vegan Recipes. This episode was recorded at the Ferry Plaza Farmers Market in partnership with our good friends at the Center for Urban Education about Sustainable Agriculture. I want to give a special thank you to the folks at the center. A special thank you to Asal Asanapur, who is on sound and who is also our amazing editor. And a thank you to everyone in the audience for joining us. You can catch this and other episodes of Real Food Reads anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And make sure you check out all of the other work we do at Real Food Media by visiting our website, www.realfoodmedia.org.